It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. I am really looking forward to today's episode because we've been chatting with our guest Nick for a bit before recording, and it's already an amazing conversation. And the reason that we decided to bring this wonderful man on the show is because we got an email from his podcast booking agent, which very fancy. We love that. We don't have a podcast booking agent, but we love hearing from them. And and some of them, you know, send us pitches that feel not very specific, but this pitch for Nick was incredibly specific and perfect for our show because it's about shame. And shame is a subject matter that we want to dive in to as often as possible. This is something I'm personally really passionate about because I've struggled a lot with shame. And through doing research and, and reading books by people like Brene Brown, I started to uncover this, learn more about this. And and really try to unravel the way that shame has been showing up in my life. And what I love about Nick is he focuses on shame and leadership, which is also something that comes up a lot, especially because we have a lot of entrepreneurs on our show. I imagine we have a good amount of entrepreneurs listening to the show. And it's really interesting to see how shame plays a role in our in the work environment, but especially for anyone who's leading. And of course, leadership shows up in so many elements of our life, not just business. It it could be our personal lives. If you're a parent, that's that's technically a leadership role, right? If you're a teacher, if you are in charge of a community of any sorts. And I think that in many people's lives, leadership will show up in one way or another. So I think that's a great way to dive in. I'm curious, Nick, you have this focus on shame. So I want to know like what led you to that? Like what inspired you to to speak on that so regularly? Well, first of all, lovely to be here. So excited. Loved the chance to just chat about the world. I've been told this is a conversation. So uh very exciting. But shame, you know, so a little backstory and I as a podcast producer myself, I'm gonna just tell you right now and keep this real short. So I make podcasts for a living. I have my own podcast other than the one we're talking about today called Where There's Smoke, which is sort of like self-development. The tag is self-development through the lens of current events, pop culture, and experience. And so, you know, we we take what's happening in the world and we say, oh, well, the election, what, what lessons can we take from the election? And we do like an NPR style dive into it. And years and years and years ago, you know, I was doing episode ideation for topics and I wrote down shame. And I immediately was like, okay, yeah. And I started doing research on that. And then every time I would think about it, I'd go, oh, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And then it turned out that it was just never going to be one episode. And so where the smoke was on a hiatus. And so I said, and I write that with a man named Brett. We have a great partnership. And I was like, I want to make my own show right now. And shame has been sitting on this whiteboard for like four years. That was the the real kind of question is, is why is it every time that I come back to the concept of shame, did I feel like 
there was so much more to it. And so that came became a two, two and a half year, just like when I had a second, you know, read this book, watch this thing, write this journey to produce shame rules, which is my, I don't know if it's a love letter. <laughs> I don't know if that's the right word, but it is a real critical look at trying to explore. You mentioned Brene Brown and I love Brene Brown, but I think sometimes shame gets talked about too small. And we think about shame as that feeling, it's a self-conscious emotion, right? It's a feeling that you have and you feel bad about yourself and you hide in the corner. But I really wanted to explore shame as a structural force, the thing that we as a society, how we use shame, how it influences the world and shapes it. And so that's been like kind of a, that's, I don't know how short that was, but that's the, that's the journey to this point that I'm talking to you. When you talk about shame as a structural force, Nick, we've delved into that a bit in terms of blog posts and and some other things that we, we've written on our website, wellevator.com. Uh, for the listener, if you want to go check that out, we will link to that blog post about shame at w-e-l-l-e-v-a-t-r.com. And when you say uh, about it being a structural force, what comes up for me is really looking at it through the lens of, say social media and sort of this cancel culture and mob mentality and a lot of the things that we are currently witnessing in terms of behavioral patterns. And I'm curious when you say a structural force, exactly what do you mean? And the sub question is, how do you feel that the the arc of social media and the way we use social media is feeding the social acceptability of shaming others? Such a great question. <laughs> and I have an episode, there's a couple episodes that are coming up that you know, the quarter four of last year and, and into it's January when we record this, it's all been a little nuts. So I've got a couple episodes I've been sitting on because I know I haven't quite settled on what I want to say. But, you know, social media is interesting. And I think that shame as it relates to how we engage online, it may be a little broken, right? Because there's a question as to whether or not shame had value ever as a society. I would argue, I'm not, I just would argue that it did, at least maybe not on the individual level, but on the cultural level, right? If you're in a community of people and, you know, that community really has to be organized around some sense of shared goals and values. And so shame was a non, you know, criminal justice way, although it does, there's definitely plenty of shame in the criminal justice system of, but it, shame was a way of exerting or asserting some sort of here's what's okay and here's what's not. And the thing about that, of course, is back then you were locked basically wherever you were. You know, you weren't going to, in a given, you may never travel more than 20 miles outside of where you were born. This is, these are your people. And I'm not saying that there is, that there was no oppression or no problems that, you know, I'm not, would never make that claim ever. But shame seemed to at least function for the society somewhat effectively. Maybe not on the individual level, but for the collective. However, you know, there's a, somebody I interviewed on, on the episode or one of the future episodes talks about the distinction between communities of place and communities of interest. And, you know, we up until radio or, you know, air travel, we really only had communities of place. And then it turned into communities of interest. You might go to a, a convention for real estate agents in Chicago. And oh my gosh, these are all my, we're share, we share a common interest in real estate, but we don't live near each other. This is crazy. And then there's phones. And now with social media, we have a space that is public, 
but is also largely dominated by communities of interest. And so you can live within a community of interest almost your entire day and life. And I don't know how this show sort of shakes out politically, but I would argue that when we think about what's happened since the election of 2020 and a lot of the mistruths and other stuff and people's lack of ability to think critically or when they get caught being wrong, the reason that they don't feel shame about it is because the people that they interact with don't make them. (laughs) There's nowhere to go. Back in the day, if I walked outside my door and said, the whole world is made of gumdrops, you know, eventually my neighbors would be like, Nick, you're crazy. And I would find no other point of validation in the world. So the shaming would have at least kept me, maybe I'm right about the gumdrops, (laughs) but the shame would have at least kept me from really going too far. And I want to be very clear. I'm not seeking out the oppression of anybody, but now the way that it works online and saying that you can live entirely in communities of interest changes what shame can and can't do. And I don't know if we fully really reckoned with that. What this brings up to me, Nick, which is sort of this, I guess, overlapping or, or I don't know, secondary subject that I think is also related is, is what appears to be the malleability of truth. Right, that that we've talked about this. We had a great episode with our colleague and friend Luke Story about the nature of truth, of subjective personal truth versus a objective universal type of truth. And when you said the thing about the world being made up of gumdrops, one thing that I've been really interested in is listening to people like the hosts of the Conspirituality podcast and also Alex Ebert, who is probably best known as the lead singer of Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros, but he's been talking a lot about this malleability of truth and and people having this tendency to create a siloed sovereign reality that I create my own reality. This is my truth. You know, the earth is flat. The government is made up of satanic reptilian pedophile blood drinkers. You know, this is what's real. You don't know what's real. I know the truth. And I think what you're talking about is is fascinating because it's like as people are creating these sort of perceptions of a sovereign independent reality where only their subjective truth matters, it just seems like there's a lot of interesting interplay between shame and truth and people telling each other what's right, what's wrong. I don't know that I have a question in this, but it seems that, you know, social media has engendered this sort of free for all of what the hell is real anymore. If if people are canceling each other and shaming each other. And there are these siloed independent groups saying we have the ultimate truth and you're wrong. I feel it's very difficult right now to figure out, quote, what's real. And I'm wondering how that lands for you and what your perception of that is. Okay. So I had so many great thoughts. Of course, I've forgotten them all. Of course. (laughs) Just trust me, they were brilliant. But connected to that idea, and I would say, is this, this idea that Because, you know, I know cancel culture gets kind of used. I think the notion of what cancel culture is, is used sometimes inappropriately. Isn't it nice that the rich and powerful do have to be held accountable now? Right? Like, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say that, you know, is it is there are values to the and I'm not the rich and powerful. I mean, I'm fine. But I'm not who I'm who we're talking about. But there is something about the average person who can find themselves canceled online and you go, well, look at Donald Trump. 
The thing that Donald Trump, who I have a whole thing about his shame. In fact, there's a whole segment of an episode about whether or not he feels shame. And we can talk about that if you want. But the thing about Donald Trump is that he, I think, realized that he didn't, there's no value in, for him, in really listening to or accepting blame or feeling the shame of the community because, or accepting that he was wrong about anything because the emotional pain coming from the other side is so strong. So, and that's left or right or whatever. We've we found a place where shame is used so much as a weapon from people you don't know and people who don't care about you, people who don't know if you kill your care if you kill yourself, right? So, there's no real benefit to feeling and accepting the shame and the key step here would then be in repairing the relationship and looking closely at the opinion, looking closely at what you're trying to do, because they're not giving you any grace. And part of the reason for that is they don't know you. You're not their neighbor. And I mean neighbor in a very literal, not your brother is your neighbor, all that stuff. I mean, just like you don't encounter them in the world. And on top of that, I don't need to. Even if they were my literal neighbor, I may not even know that. So there is something about the ways in which the breakdown of shame and the weaponization of it sort of simultaneously has really erased the ability for people to benefit from recognizing their errors. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's really interesting. You use the word weaponization, which I think is like, it's real, it's potent. And I wonder in terms of a person's receptivity to shame, you mentioned Donald Trump as an example. We're not obviously going to necessarily use this episode as a <laughs> mechanism to bash him, although maybe we will. Who knows where it's going to go? But I think it's interesting that you posited this stance that you've observed, which I agree with, that he just sort of wouldn't accept it or internalize it or process it. And it's interesting to me when you see people like him who are in positions of influence, power, wealth, privilege. They're they're obviously trying to leverage their worldview in very you know, potent ways to, you know, change things or, or make things happen in the world. And I'm wondering, you know, a human being who doesn't allow themselves to feel shame or doesn't allow themselves to even, let, let's say, even receive feedback, right? Of, hey, you might be doing this wrong. This might be doing more harm than good. What do you think is going on, generally speaking, in a person's, I don't know, psychology, personal cosmology that a human being could go... I'm not even going to listen to another person's opinion of my behavior because I know I'm right and you're all fucking wrong. That's hilarious, but also true. I mean, I, I guess maybe the simplest way to answer this would be, you know, I talked to the woman who Dr. June Tangney, who is like the woman who invented what she calls this, the shame proneness scale. Like, what is your susceptibility to feeling shame? And what's interesting is that we associate people who don't show a lot of the marks of shame. I mean, shame is a very complicated emotion. It is a relatively early developed emotion, which is interesting. So, you know, you, you start to wonder, is there an evolutionary value to that? But it is also usually accompanied by very, very consistent behaviors. You know, it's a lowering of the eyes. It's a elevation of the heart rate. It, it's a, you know, kids will literally like curl up into a ball. They might hide in a corner. I mean, these are real things. And But we confuse the idea of, oh, well, people don't do that. This person doesn't do that a lot with this person doesn't feel shame. It is true that some people feel shame a lot and they can feel it a lot and it can be at a very, very low level. Maybe they've gotten used to it. Like, oh, I feel shame all the time. So I can kind of manage this. 
And there's people who necessarily don't display that a lot. They have a low level of shame proneness, but when they do feel it, it is very, very high. And so I would suggest, and I hope this kind of connects to what we're talking about a little bit, is that Donald Trump, you know, people talk about, well, he's shameless. And I think that is clearly not true. The problem has been that Donald Trump feels shame very, very acutely. And so things like, you know, he's a narcissist. I don't think there's any question of that. Things like going way back four years ago, it's the day after the inauguration, you know, his inaugural size can't be smaller than Barack Obama's is a very, that's only, that claim is only made if somebody feels shame about their comparison to this other person. And so you can see how twisted up it can become when shame is so powerful and how destructive it can be to everybody else around you. So I don't know if that really kind of got where we needed to go, but that's what I thought of. It's such an important thing to discuss this because, you know, it's it's especially fascinating when we're talking about someone like Donald Trump, especially now, which is we're recording this the day after Inauguration Day. And it's interesting because it felt like from people I know, which I'm kind of in this liberal bubble of people, uh, I don't, I'm not connected to that many Republicans, just to be fully transparent. It, I don't know if it was a conscious effort of mine, or just a, the fact that I was raised by liberal parents and liberal, liberal areas that I've lived in and gone to school. And, you know, like, I've just perhaps unconsciously been in these these worlds of of like-minded people in a lot of ways. So I'm I'm actually very fascinated by people that think differently than me, right? And anyways, yesterday on inauguration day, it felt like everyone I knew was commenting or literally showing signs of relief. It's like, "Oh, okay, great. Like Donald Trump is gone." And I'm really curious to see like if Republicans were feeling that way, too, because we can't assume that every Republican supported Donald Trump, right? I wonder if part of that sigh of relief is like, not necessarily about the shift in our politics, but about like the shift in the energy behind this individual. And then I also wonder about the people that were really supportive of him. You know, when we saw what happened on January 6th at the Capitol, that behavior, like, is that directly related to Donald Trump or is Donald Trump almost like uh, triggering those reactions within people that are like-minded to him, if that makes sense? And like, you know, all these judgments that we can put on those people that participated in those, in that kind of rioting behavior and, and stepping back and being like, well, what what's really going on with them? Like, why did they make those decisions to behave that way? And and I think that question of like, do they have no shame, right? Because like, it definitely takes a certain person that's willing to, <laughs> to break into the Capitol building and steal things and then maybe sell them on eBay and all these like things that were happening on that day, which someone could easily re- react to as, oh, they must not have any shame. So, you know, I don't want to, this is a work in progress. I just want to say that (laughs) I have not. It always is, right? (laughs) (laughs) But so one of my, as relates to, you know, I think the relief that we feel around the inauguration, at least some of us, I know some people don't feel that relief, but I think a lot of people do. I think that's one of the reasons Joe Biden got the nomination. I think it's the, you know, it's reported that George W. Bush yesterday told James Clyburn that he was basically the hero of this whole story because he got 
you know, he famously endorsed Joe Biden in South Carolina and that propelled him to the nomination. And it's George W. Bush's idea that all and not alone that it's Joe Biden specifically could have beaten Donald Trump. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I, you know, I think Joe Biden, I was I said sort of as a joke yesterday, but I, you know, I was watching yet another clip of Joe Biden crying, quoting uh, an Irish poet. And I just thought, you know, I really wish I could feel as deeply as Joe Biden does. And I wish I could feel gratitude as deeply as Joe Biden does. And I think that that communicates. Now, there's that. But I will say I have this theory about Trump and Trump followers. And I know there are people who just vote Republican historically. And, you know, they're fiscally conservative or, you know, and they're Reagan Republicans, all these things. But there is a brand of person who is a Trump loyalist to the end, you know, the ride or die, who I think the problem in quotes, and I'm going to say that the, the trajectory from the start of the Donald Trump story to an attempted insurrection in the Capitol is a bad trajectory. So I, I feel like I can safely live in that world. But I, my theory is, is that it started immediately upon Trump taking the White House because, you know, if you recall, it was three days, four days after the inauguration that he instituted a Muslim ban. And okay, that's whatever. But the problem was that it was not only racist and unnecessary, but it was also so poorly executed and conceived. Now, here's why that's important. We all have to feel like we understand our world, right? That's the only way we can function is we go, I know what's happening around me. I get this. And that election, and I'm not really on social media very often, but that election apparently on Facebook was a total nightmare, 2016. Thank God I missed it. But you know, people were like, Donald Trump would be a bad president. And what happened was he was so immediately not up to the task. He was so immediately not up to the job that I think the lot, I can't speak to anyone's heart and mind and soul specifically, but my theory is that a lot of people went, whoa, okay, a lot of my friends told me that this was bad news and I voted for Trump anyway. And now within four days, they might be right. And I think that... (laughs) The cognitive dissonance of how could I have been so duped or how could I be so wrong about this is really hard to swallow. And I think to avoid having to come to grips with that and the shame of being so wrong and so fooled led a lot of people to say, nope, this is it. (laughs) This is what I wanted. Of course. Oh, yeah, of course. But there's no question that even just on – even if you agree with the notion of what a Muslim ban is, there's no question that the way it was was done – was completely just an absolute shit show. So that's sort of my theory as to how is it possible that so you know little by little by little, you know it's it's that old adage of boiling the frog, right? Although it's not true, but the story goes that you put a frog in water and you start to boil the water slowly, and it doesn't recognize that the temperature is getting hotter and hotter, and it won't jump out; it'll just boil to death. And I think that there is a real. <laughs> real explanation of what we've seen over the last, especially two months, that fits into this theory I've had for a couple of years about the Muslim ban. On the point of you bringing up, which is actually super fascinating of people who voted for Trump and then having this reaction of just like, oh my God, that, you know, did what have I done, so to speak? Or, you know, my God, this isn't what I expected. And then so clinging to their choice of like, no, 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 no. I, this is okay. This is, this is what I wanted. Sort of convincing themselves that everything was okay. You know, the viewpoint that I kind of had, which, you know, might be something that has been parroted a lot over the last four years is, I think 
in some ways he was a lens or a magnifying glass, if you will, to things that maybe we were, a lot of us were compartmentalizing or acting like weren't there. You know, we bring up systemic racism as one of many examples we could bring up of just like, oh yeah, you know, we've done so much progress here and, you know, black and brown people have all these rights now and and look at all we've done. And then the last four years was like, holy shit, actually we haven't necessarily done that much because look at the magnifying glass that's being put on this. Whereas some people have said, well, you know, police brutality and, you know, murders and citizens having their rights taken away and and all these things have been happening ad infinitum for decades. But now we're getting a much more acute lens and a higher frequency of it. And so, you know, with Trump, the thing that I think about is, is in some ways, he brought up these pus-filled, aching, open wounds that were there that people were like, oh, no, 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 that, that's, not, that's not an open wound. We put Band-Aids on that years ago. And in some ways, I feel like he metaphorically ripped off a lot of Band-Aids. And so in some ways, I think there was some benefit to it of, wow, holy shit, there are some really deep, aching, old wounds that we have to address. Like we, we simply can't, well, some people can turn away from it. A lot of people turned away from it. But for me, my interpretation was like, wow, I, I want to take a better look in my life of, you know, how I might be contributing to these things. And, and in some ways, how I've been living in a sort of, again, siloed reality of these things not existing. You know, so I think that's all true. What's a little frustrating about Trump is that he does not seem to be compelled by any ideology. So that it's like it's it's barely I mean, I, I do believe that Trump behaves as a white supremacist, but I don't think he really cares enough. I feel like I don't think he cares. It's just it's whatever's going to work for him, you know, just so that like I sounds like we're all liberal folks. I hope other people are listening to. But just so liberals don't feel comfortable in this situation, I think you've Jason pointed to like. You know, of course, I know it's like kind of a meme at this point, but like, oh, racism's over, reelected a black president. My favorite, I liked The Onion in 2008 had uh, a joke where they uh, said that George W. Bush should be uh, praised as a civil rights leader for making the country hate him so much that we would elect a black president. I always like that take. Wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So anyway. Right. <laughs> but, you know, yesterday, so it's again, it's January 21st now. Yesterday I was walking around. And uh, I am a very, very pro coronavirus vaccine person. Put it, give it to me right now. I will stop this interview right now if somebody came up with the, came with the vaccine in a needle. Now, I was talking to a friend yesterday, also liberal, also you know doing fine in the world, educated. And I was saying, you know, if somebody stopped me on the street right now and just gave me a vaccine, I am not a first responder. I am not old. I am not, you know, I don't have any real pre-existing health conditions that are would be affected by this. And I would still take that shot now. <laughs> it's so fast. And I was trying to make sense of, well, shouldn't I just like call myself on my own bullshit about this? Like, obviously, people who are, there's so many groups of people who don't have the access I do, who don't have the opportunities that I do, who need these shots more but you better believe I'm on every possible list trying to get a shot for me and my family. And I was really trying to make sense of that. Like, really, if I really believed some of the stuff that I felt and espoused, it really seems like that I would be, in fact, doing the work on behalf of other people. But I'm not. And when I was trying to have this conversation with my friend, she really like, and I, she's my best friend, really was like, I don't know what else she's supposed to do. 
And I really like, I don't know how related this is. I'm just trying to like call out liberals. I'm sure I'm not alone in this, but really kind of sitting here and trying to make sense of my own. I don't know if I fully felt the shame of that realization about myself yet because it was yesterday. And I'm kind of like, go away. But I do think that there is some reckoning around our own complicitness leading up to Trump and that we, I think, nobody wants to admit that they're wrong. Nobody wants to admit that they're selfish. Nobody wants to feel the shame that we are going to feel. I'm not really a believer in the idea that we should never feel shame. That doesn't seem to make any sense to me. Uh, Shame can be instructive. You just have to, and people make this distinction between guilt and shame. We can talk about that. But just as an example, I would say that conversation yesterday and these like feelings I know that I'm putting off, if I'm good, (laughs) there's a shame language, there's shame language right there. If I'm good, I'll use that to do something better than I have been doing. And now Whitney, I know you mentioned, I'm like, all I want to hear about is the shame you talked about at the start of the show. I don't know if this, (laughs) I don't know if this resonates with you at all. It does. And, and, you know, I, I don't feel uncomfortable talking about shame. In fact, I read a book once uh, by this woman named Christine Kane who said that shame loses its power when it's expressed. So I'm like, well, I guess I better express it as often as I possibly can. So it doesn't have as much power over me. But I will say before I get into that, that, you know, it's really interesting how listening to you talk about like the collective shame that we might feel as a country right now, I certainly experience that from time to time, wondering like, Gosh, do other people in other countries think that we as Americans are just so awful because we had Trump as a president? And again, this is coming from my perspective. I I feel uncomfortable by the way, like I don't want to take sides and I don't I don't want to like make Republicans feel un- unworthy or unwanted or a bad people because I don't believe that. I don't think that anybody should be judged based on on labels. You know, we can judge people on their choices and their behaviors, but like to collectively say like anyone who voted for Trump is bad, especially based on what you said, Nick, because I, I know someone personally who voted for Trump and really regretted it. You know, like just like you were bringing up earlier, this this idea of, oh, no, what have I done mentality? And we do have a democracy. So clearly enough people voted for him that they made him president and we had to deal with it for four years. I didn't agree with that. It's not who I voted for. But we're all in this together. And that's part of how we how we work as a country. And and I'm a big believer in unity. Sometimes things don't go our way, even when we try really hard for them to go our way. Right. And I often wonder, like, should I feel embarrassed as, as a U.S. citizen? And similar emotions came up for me, or I at least heard them a lot from other people during Black Lives Matter in summer 2020. People were often sharing, like, I'm embarrassed to be white. I'm ashamed to be white. And I thought, that's really interesting. And I didn't really think that that was coming up for me, but it definitely raised my awareness around what it means to be white in this country and my sensitivity around it got heightened. And so sometimes I have those moments. I'm like, oh my gosh, is somebody judging me because I'm white, right? And I actually think that's a good thing to experience because clearly people of different skin colors have been judged for their entire lives. And I've had the privilege of not being judged. And I think all of those things are just really interesting to reflect upon and my aim is is to make people feel more included. And in fact, 
when you're bringing up the Muslim side of thing, that's actually something that I've been digging into a lot more. I've talked about on some recent episodes how I started making some videos on TikTok about non-alcoholic drinks and all of these Muslim people started pouring into my account. And I was like, wow, like I don't really know many Muslims. So it was really interesting to learn about their culture and I feel so ignorant about it. But like that ignorance kind of excites me because I want to make them feel included. And now like every video I make, I'm like, gosh, is this making people feel included or am I accidentally making people feel excluded? And that's kind of an interesting thing as a content creator. You know, you had said, you know, you haven't been judged by... You know, I understand you're making a point about being white. Now, I have to say, I actually was, I'm a mixed person. We briefly talked on video, but I present as very white. I'm sure sometimes people think I'm over the summer. People might think I'm like from the Middle East or something, or like a sort of like Italian or or sort of like I I become more olive skinned and that's like, okay for some people. But so I I actually think that I live maybe perhaps the most privileged of existences where it's like, I'm a man, (laughs) I'm educated, you know, but I have access to, I was raised by a single black woman, you know, I have access to that community in a way that really is sort of overwhelming. I can tell you stories about how that works out. And it feels really, I'm very, I feel very fortunate, but it also feels very unearned culturally. But, you know, I will say, Whitney, you know, as a woman in this world, I mean, you think about the role of shame as it's applied to women. I mean, there's like, I didn't realize it. Two of the first three episodes of Shame Rules are about how shame is applied to women. And I did not go in with that idea. <laughs> but it's so clear. I mean, you look at the Bible. One of the very first stories in the Bible is about how shame was invented because Eve fucked everything up. And so, you know, Eve becomes the patient zero of this thing that we try to, this feeling that is so unpleasant for us. And this feeling and shame as an act that we have used for thousands of years, particularly against women. And I was just curious about sort of just your thoughts on a side that I feel, I I can't speak for you. I mean, I can't speak for your personal experience, but it clearly men do not bear the brunt of that in the same way. Right. Absolutely true. And, you know, especially on the body image side of things, which is something I struggled with a lot over my life. And I think that that's actually what revealed the shame for me because I had to look at like, why do I feel so unhappy with my body? Or why have I spent so much of my life being unhappy with my body? And I've been digging into that for, uh, gosh, probably the past 20 years at least. And just trying to better understand it because I don't like not loving my body. You know, it's, I want to embrace it and love it and feel comfortable in it. And, and that's a huge issue culturally for women and men. You know, it's certainly not something exclusive to gender. It's something that many people struggle with. And I think that we feel very confused about things like sexuality and going back to the Bible. Like you can look at that too. It's like, every decision we make, it feels like it has a ripple effect. And are we being judged? Are we sinning? You know, all of those things can bring up different emotions. And yeah, I I guess my, a lot of my experience with shame has been centered around my body. And I think as a woman that can feel really challenging because we can feel shamed for being certain weight. We can feel shamed for being different ages. We can be shamed for what we're wearing 
you know, we can be shamed for our perceived sexuality or lack of it. Like there's just so much shame around almost every single element. And I try to get a grasp on it. It's it's incredibly challenging as a content creator, I would say, that I manage it a lot mentally because I'm used to it. I've been doing video content for over 10 years. And so it's like, all right, like I'm going to hunker down and and <laughs> and do this even when I don't feel as confident, but it still is there pretty much every time I turn on the camera, look in the mirror, I'm thinking about this and wondering, will I be perceived in one way or another? Will somebody come up and shame me as they often have, you know, on YouTube, for example, I feel like I got shamed out of out of my experience on YouTube because in the comments section, it's like somebody has an opinion on everything that you do and everything you say, every, every the way that you look. And for me, I internalize that as shame. I internalize that as there's something wrong with me that I need to change and I'm never going to be good enough. Yeah. You know, it's so, it's like so sad. <laughs> you know, I have to question, did you happen to grow You mentioned what you, the, the second episode of Shame Rolls is about purity culture. Is that anything that resonates with you? Hmm. I haven't examined that. My my knee jerk reaction is I I don't believe that that was part of my upbringing, but it might have been in a in a subtle way, I suppose. Well, you know, it's interesting because I you know the first episode's about um, a patient the patient zero of of AIDS, which is you know so called patient uh, patient zero, and that's all kinds of it's the eighties, all kinds of comments on what it means to be a gay man and sexuality and, and, you know, whatever. And the second episode is about purity. And I had a friend who was like, oh, I don't, this isn't, I don't want to listen, you know, like I'll listen to it because Nick made it, but I don't, whatever. And then like four minutes in, I get a text and he goes, oh my God, this was my entire childhood. <laughs> She's like 35. And I've, that's come across several times. It's like shame. It doesn't have to necessarily be purity, but it does have this like invisible hand that really does, you know, nothing is inherent about the things that we feel shame about. That's what's so weird about it. We take it as like a natural law, but it is, it is not true. And it's actually one of those reasons why when I think, you know, I'm a cis straight man and I'm so like stories of people who come out either as, you know, gay or come out as trans, I, I am struck by the amount of bravery that takes because it it, it flies so far in the face of what we're all told to be and do. And I really question if I would have what it would take to do that. And so when it, it's so whenever people get like mad at them, I go, don't you see how hard this is? Who would ever choose this for themselves ever? I want to jump into a little bit, I guess, of the components of shame in, in terms of what people perceive as the benefit of receiving and processing shame. Is it that when you brought purity, Nick, you know, is it that I will be more favored in the eyes of God? I will be uh, what I perceive as a more righteous person. Is there some sort of people pleasing involved psychologically where if, if I internalize the shame that I'm receiving from my partner, my family, society, religion, then somehow I will, you know, I won't be cast out proverbially speaking by the tribe, maybe some sort of primal reactivity of, of wanting to be accepted and, and loved. And I'm curious about the layers of psychological ramifications that are underneath shame, sort of the the OS, if you will, of shame of why people might, you know, go after it or or this idea of repenting, right? The, the idea of repenting for one's sins. I know that might be a little bit of a tangent, but it's a curious thing to me 
of why people think shame might, again, win God's favor, keep them immune from being cast out by the tribe. Any thoughts on that? Like, what, what's the deeper underlying pinning psychologically for people around shame? I mean, Jason, you basically like asked and answered all of that so well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. And uh, that's the podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Goodbye. But I think most of what you said and, and then sort of followed up with, I think is true, right? It, you look at the development of shame. There are other emotions that we feel not necessarily that come later or they're more nuanced, but shame for being self-conscious, you have to know who, you have to know what a self is. You have to then imagine, right? Shame is is the way that we interpret how we are seen by others. It's a really complex idea that we develop fairly early, which is, again, really interesting. And I would assume that it does connect to this idea of my survival depends on my place within this group of people, which is, again, you can see the the value in that, right? With not in our world, <laughs> but you can see it right there. You go, oh my gosh, this little kid is like, I need to be safe. I can't take care of myself. I need whatever. These are my people. I'm just going to stay where I need to be in order for this to happen. And again, want to clarify, there's all kinds of, of great things we've managed to do over thousands of years of human just thought and philosophy. Um, but there, it does seem like that the early days of, of it and how shame was used had some value. Having said that, of course, going back to the church and repentance and other stuff, it's really hard to disconnect the idea of power with the idea of shame. I mean, who has to repent? It's the people who are less powerful. They're the ones who have to repent. And so it is. there is an element of, and, and the third episode, right? Third episode talks about the role of church and the intersection of religion and purity and the state, right? Because the church and the state for so long were largely the same. And so you you see how shame as often you think about people being put in the stocks or people being, we talked about a story of a third episode of, of a woman being hung for having a, a baby and not being married. And so you sit there and you go, oh, well, she's she's being hung because, oh, She's that's a sin against God and that's bad. But then you do a little bit more research and you find out, oh, well, the reason that this happens at all is because the state couldn't afford all these babies. And so they had to find a way to make this a mortal sin to discourage women from doing it. And of course, people be having sex back then. <laughs> it's not, it's like we, we've tried this so many times and it's only the women who are left with the consequences of it. And so they're the ones who bear the brunt of it. And the brunt of that shame. So that's like kind of like a lot of of steps around there. But I do think to kind of sum up that there is an innate. It is so easily weaponized because it is coded within us. One, and then it's hard for me to separate what it means. Repent. I mean, I was raised Catholic. My true story: my mother was a nun, my father was a priest. This is a real thing, and they we were not a shame filled family necessarily, but. You know, I, I know my Catholic stuff, and clearly, shame is not just like there's all kinds of things that get left out of the Bible. Shame is not one of them, and that's not an accident. I guess is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> so, in some ways, I mean, shame can be a societal control mechanism. You use that brilliant example of a woman being hung to discourage, on a societal level, you know, the sort of a population control method. And the thing that I think is interesting psychologically is that when we have people in positions of power, be they priests, 
venture capitalists, celebrities, etc. And they have, a, I guess, a particular moral or ethical position that they posit into the world. And then we find out in their personal life, they're doing the exact same thing they told us we ought not do. It sort of becomes this broken framework psychologically, I think, of, of we deify certain people, again, religious figures, business leaders, celebrities, etc. We make them almost godlike in certain ways with the way we treat them and view them in society. But then we get these stories that come about, okay, you know, they molested this person or they raped this person or money laundering or whatever, whatever it is. There's a million examples. I think it's interesting because it leads into a question of, you know, the dynamics of hierarchy, whether or not societal hierarchies and the way that we have maintained them and continue to support them work for us and how we sort of we go back to this purity culture of holding people in these positions to this lofty standard where they're espousing a certain philosophy we find out they're not even in alignment with their own philosophy and then it becomes this question of like well who do we follow who do we trust and i think psychologically that must be kind of tough for people but it's this fi- it's this fine line i know i'm getting a little tangential here but it's like we deify these types of people we hold them to this insanely high standard they have these insanely high standards but then when we find out they've molested someone or raped someone or done something outside of their own framework of ethics they've talked about, then we want to literally burn them at the stake. It's almost like we're so disappointed in them because they fucked up and they lied to us or they were incongruent with their own morals or, or ethical viewpoints that we're like, yeah, just, just burn them. It's such a fascinating interplay. And it's almost like, do we put too much faith in our leaders? Do we put too much faith in these people that we deify like this? It's like, they're human and they're fallible too. Yeah, but, you know, most of the time these people asked for it. You know, I like I I was just having this conversation yesterday. People were like, oh, you know, you can't say anything anymore or you can't you can't make this joke. You can't do this. Everyone's coming for you, blah, blah, blah. And I I, I was saying, like, I like want people to go look at my social media over the last 15 years. And I'm, I am I went to University of Illinois. We were in like the second wave of schools. So one of my, even though I don't like Facebook, one of my like humble brags is like, I have one of the earliest member sense dates you're going to see on Facebook. So take that. But, you know, I look at that and I go, go look at my stuff. It hasn't actually been this hard to just not be the worst. <laughs> like this isn't a new idea, you know, and it's so frustrating that, you know, if someone elects to be, I'm a, a leader, I'm a spiritual leader, I'm whatever, and then falls short of that, that same compassion, they never apply to other people, it seems like. And to me, I mean, that's not really related to shame. I wish that they would feel shame. I'm sure they do, but it doesn't stop them from doing it, apparently. Again, that's really that's really tangential. That's more a point. I just wanted to brag about my Facebook membership. <laughs> Does it say, is it since 04 or 05? I don't remember. It, 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 I want to say it's 05. You know what? While we're talking, I'll just look it up. That's fine. I'll just I'll just flex that right 05, now. 05, dude. Back back when MySpace was still relevant. You know, I, rem- I, never, I remember that too. I remember when it was like, oh, we're on MySpace and this is a total tangent. But then it was like, what's this Facebook thing? Okay, wait, wait. First of all, I never had a MySpace. I was like, what is this? Uh, I'm 38 now for the record, just so everyone kind of puts me in. You know, I was in college. I joined June of 2004. Uh, Facebook. So little did I know that it would. And I remember when, you know, and actually, interestingly, I remember when the newsfeed was invented, you know, back then you would just be online and 
this is actually how I still use Facebook, right? So here's my rule. When I go to Facebook, I open up to actually my other podcast page, uh, Where There's Smoke. I don't go to the Facebook.com. And I am allowed to look up anybody I think of. I could go, hey, what's my friend Lucas doing? Oh, what about that girl I went to high school with? Whatever. And I can look him up, which is how Facebook started and see what's up and whatever. But I'm not allowed to go to the news feed to just do the algorithm work. So that's that's been very, very helpful. Now, having said that, Twitter and me have a complicated relationship. So <laughs> I don't before people get excited. Anyway, that off topic, but, you know, boo Facebook. Well, it, it actually is interesting to to talk about Facebook in that way because Jason and I have been using Clubhouse and it, it feels kind of like the early days of Facebook when everyone's like figuring it out and like, is this going to become the next big thing or not? And that kind of early stage experience of being on a newer social media platform is really fascinating to me. And, and actually, I think very disarming because the longer a platform exists, like people start to feel very confident in these rules and best practices develop and it's suddenly boxing you in in some ways. Whereas Clubhouse right now is is fun, not just because it's audio, which obviously all three of us thrive with audio-based content, but but it, it's just kind of that Wild West feeling of I can explore and I feel like I don't have to do things the right or the wrong way. You know, first of all, I've actually never heard of Clubhouse. So definitely wanting to check that out. But, oh, that's what it was. So talking about social media and talking about Facebook and talking about the newsfeed, it does, to bring this back to shame a little bit, it's interesting. I mean, it used to be that I could espouse an idea. Let's use the world is made of gumdrops or the world is gumdrops or whatever from before. I could espouse an idea. And then over time, I could quietly change that idea. Or maybe not even over time. One night I go, oh my God, I can't believe I said that. What? And it was fine. Nobody would remember. Or if they did, they they knew you and they were like, oh, you know, Nick's a good guy or whatever. But there is the permanence of social media and digital publishing in general does also create a little bit of a problem because now I'm not really, I, I don't have the space to evolve or to change. And if I do, I'm going to get destroyed no matter what. Because again, there's not really any value. I've been thinking about this so much recently. There's not any value in changing my mind anymore. The people who that I used to agree with are going to be mad at me. And they're going to go, oh, I can't believe you betrayed us. The people that I am now agreeing with, with my new opinion, are going to tell me, I can't believe it took you so long. What's wrong with you? You're a monster. You're complicit. And so <laughs> there is something about the permanence of social media that I think Perhaps I know the algorithms are the real problem, but I would also suggest that it is a, a huge part of why social media seems to be so disruptive. Yeah, and and I think we we see this in so many permutations with a lot of the communities. I suppose we dabble in of people deciding to eat differently, or choose a different lifestyle, or vote for someone different, or have a different spiritual belief, and then they're vilified by the old community, and then they're embraced by the new one. And it is just such a fascinating thing to observe anthropologically. I want to go back to something we talked about, you know, a while back, Nick, and I, I, I want to make a distinction because I'm curious, you know, Whitney and Nick uh, of your viewpoints on this, but the difference between guilt and shame without maybe necessarily, you know, opening up, I was going to say opening up a Webster's dictionary. Do I even have a physical freaking dictionary here at the house? I think I have one 
which I kind of don't want to let it go because the idea of having a physical dictionary is very quaint to me. But I'm curious, the difference between guilt and the difference between shame. Whitney, do you want to tackle this? <laughs> wow, put me on the spot. <laughs> you don't have, I just wondered. I didn't no, I'm, I'm just open. teasing. I'm just teasing. Yeah, it's interesting because I think it's such a distinction. You know, one of the ways that I, I've heard it best explained is that it's the difference between like, oh, you've done something bad. You've made a bad choice versus you are bad or you made a mistake versus you are the mistake. And so if it something is kind of misinterpreted or told to us in a certain way, it can feel like that choice or whatever you did is actually more about you at the core than than some some behavior that you exhibited and that is something i have to remind myself of over and over and over again because i'm in the mental habit of thinking every time somebody comes to me and says that they think i did something bad did something wrong or made a mistake or whatever it is like that's where my shame flares up. And it's like, I have this little evil person sitting on my shoulder saying like, did you hear that? Like, you're an awful person. Yeah. I mean, I think that's basically the same definition I would have given. I think people also add to the idea of guilt that guilt is something that you can make amends for. So you do something wrong, you break the teapot, you know, there is an element of, you know, teapot in my mind is like shattered. So it doesn't work, but let's say it's broken two pieces. You know, you can apologize for it. You can take ownership of it because you just did the thing. Right. And you can glue it back together or you can buy a new one. And so you sort of restore your relationship with that person. People often refer to guilt. I say people, it's researchers, it's other people. And I'm not saying that I necessarily subscribe to these. I'm much less interested. <laughs> it's, it feels bad. I'm really interested in the questions and I'm never certain of any answers, but people refer to guilt as being pro-social because it it asks you to engage in repairing those relationships and in, in that way. And shame is the thing that keeps you from going out on Friday night because you're, you know, too embarrassed and, and embarrassed being on like the, the very far end of the shame spectrum. So the, Jason, does that, is that align with where you were? Yeah, it was more just, you know, curious to hear your personal definitions of it and, and, it seems almost that that in our language and the way that we contextually use these phrases that there's a much more punitive aspect to guilt in some cases, right? If we think about our criminal justice system, you know, a person is either innocent or guilty and they're innocent or until proven guilty. You know, we we don't say they're innocent until proven shameful. I just I feel like guilt has a much more punitive there's retribution involved with guilt as opposed to shame being maybe more of sort of an internal thing that we have to process on an emotional and a level of psyche. I mean, certainly, you know, guilt and shame, I think, could be compatible in certain ways, perhaps. I mean, if someone creates a, if if someone does something against the law and they're found guilty, they might feel shame for murdering someone or they may not. But I don't know, guilt to me just comes up, I don't know, I'm trying to process it in real time right now of like, Okay, as an example, the thing, this is so interesting. The thing that I feel shameful for sometimes is not because someone has has called me out on this per se, but you know, you, you mentioned Nick having all these advantages. You know, I'm also I'm also a mixed race person. I, I uh, am a, a white appearing cisgendered man, 
who has a Puerto Rican, Spanish, Latino father and a white mother. And, you know, I feel in some ways, you know, when I engage with people of different, you know, ethnicities in the the Latino umbrella or the Latin X umbrella, it's like, oh, you're Puerto Rican, you're Spanish. I would have never known. And, and to your point, I don't feel like I've earned that cultural alignment in some ways. But the point being, I grew up with all these advantages, you know, went to a Montessori school, had a loving mother, a white appearing male, went to Columbia, had a great education, blah, 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 all these things. And sometimes I feel like you're really fucking up in life, dude. You're not successful enough. You're not doing enough. You had all these advantages. Look at your education. Look at look at how people perceive you on and on and on. So it's almost like the internal sense of shame I feel is like I'm not doing enough to help the world or or do good in the world, given all the advantages and privilege that I have, right? That's not something anyone's ever told me of like, you ought to do better, Jason, because look at your privilege and look at the advantages. It's more like something that sprouts for me internally that I, it's interesting. I've never actually talked about this. I'm, I'm, it's kind of coming up in real time that you sparked Nick, whereas guilt would be like, God, I don't know. The other day, my neighbors pissed me off and I really thought about keying their car. I really did. I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to, no, I was like, fuck you. I'm going to key your car. I hate you. I really have an issue with my neighbors next door. It's really a challenge for me to like have compassion for them. And I just, so anyway, I thought about it. Like I was very close the other night. I'm like, I'm going to slash their tires and key their car. And I sat with it and I went like, "Mm, you are going to feel really, really, really guilty and bad about yourself. If you do, like, if you do that, even whether or not you get caught, you're going to feel really bad about yourself if you do that. I don't know what the point of all this was. I was just kind of verbal vomiting. I don't I don't know. I don't know who I'm handing it off to now. <laughs> well, <laughs> well me- I'm curious, first of all, like that was a legit emotion with you, Jason, because I, I'm just fascinated by that. Like without judgment, I'm like, wow, because I don't know when the last time I've been pushed to that place. So I'm curious if you would talk about that a little bit more because I find it really fascinating. Like you actually we're on the verge of going to do that. It wasn't just like a passing thought for you. Oh, no, no, no. I, I was like stewing with it. Like, I mean, just bluntly. And I feel really kind of, I feel very nervous and uncomfortable to share this because I don't, I don't necessarily perceive myself as a violent or person who like seeks retribution. But I've had this issue with the neighbors at my house where I've been living for three years where they are extremely disrespectful to the point like they have these parties that where they bring in speakers and they bring in porta potties. And in the middle of COVID, they had like 40 people over their house the other day. And I said to whoever the, I don't know, patriarch of the family is, I said, Hey, I see you guys are bringing in porta potties and, you know, a whole PA system. If you guys could like wrap around midnight, you know, I go to bed then and my, my bedroom is literally right next to their backyard. Right. So of course, they didn't wrap it at midnight. They had the speaker and PA system going till three o'clock in the morning, maybe even three thirty. They had forty people in the backyard. That's a whole other thing around COVID. I'm like, you know, when you motherfuckers drop dead, don't be crying about it, you know. And I, I started to get this rage of like, I do have some vodka. I could throw a Molotov cocktail in their backyard. That would break a party really quickly. Do I have a boat horn? I could get all of my dogs' shit out of the backyard and just light the shit on fire. No, that no, that'd be too obvious because they'd come over and probably beat my ass and break my windows. But I could slash their tires and key their car when they go to bed at 4 a.m. Fuck you. That's what I'm going to do. I was so angry, Whitney. I was so full of rage because this shit's been going on for three years. And I've asked them repeatedly. And there's just zero respect for like, you know, any consideration for me or the other neighbors for that matter. So, yeah, I was filled with like this rage and, and feeling of retribution. But as I talked myself through the situation, I was like, First of all, that's going to solve nothing. You're probably going to feel better for like 
I don't know, 30 minutes, and then you're going to feel really awful about yourself for doing that. And I think this is an important thing to bring to the conversation. So thank you for having the the bravery to do so, Jason, because I imagine a lot of people have thoughts like that, but would never speak them because of guilt or shame. And this topic of rage and and also what comes up for me as you're sharing this is like, you're trying to control the situation because maybe you feel out of control. So your brain is trying to like figure out how do I fix this? And I'm really glad that you brought this up. I'm curious about Nick's thoughts on on this. I think that's so accurate, Whitney. I mean, I'm not there, but right, there's the feeling of powerlessness. Like you did the steps and you did the things you're supposed to do with your neighbor and they didn't do it. And you go, well, what on earth am I supposed to do? And I'm not, you know, it's, I make this joke when I started with my wife, when I started this shame project, I just started talking about shame all the time. And it's like, you know, once you bring out the shame hammer, everything looks like a shame nail. And so I don't want to unnecessarily apply that to this, but I might say based on, and I'm not in your body and in your thoughts and in your being, but I might go, well, one explanation for that, the level of rage, which is connected to shame. Rage is this really volatile reaction. You see it a lot in like abusive relationships and stuff like that, like rage connected to shame. And in this case, you might say, why am I so powerless? And that is, I am very angry about that. And I will destroy the thing that makes me feel powerless. And so I'm not, I'm so glad you didn't do any of that. That wouldn't be very helpful, but it is interesting, you know, and it of course is shameful to have those feelings we're taught, which is of course not true. Everybody gets angry. Everybody has like, I'm going to break shit. I'm going to burn down the thing. I love it. (laughs) I was telling that story. I was like, way to go. You know, don't do it, but you know, feel it and process it. And and I appreciate you guys just, you know, being an I guess, you know, open to, to to me sharing this because and you're right on about it. It's it's, you know, every time I see them loading in for these huge parties, it's the same conversation, right? Could you please be respectful? I go to sleep at midnight, my bedroom is literally right next door. It's you know, from your fence, my bedroom is like five feet from the fence, right next to your backyard. I've even called the cops, you know, and I called the cops multiple times and they're like, We're gonna send out a squad car because COVID and they're having a party with forty people. And, you know, the LAPD, (laughs) notorious, you know, unless you're like, someone's in my house with a gun and a machete, they're likely not going to send someone. All due respect to the LAPD, but also not all due respect. So, you know, it was it was the fact, too, that I called the police, right? And they said, we're going to send someone, and they didn't. So this feeling of powerlessness was going through all the steps as a respectful person of like, I'll talk to you in person. You didn't quiet down. I call the cops. The cops said they'd send someone. So now I feel like I have zero options other than violence. (laughs) And I'm glad I didn't, but it was going through my mind in a multitude of ways. It also comes back around to part of the discussion we had earlier of like people exhibiting behavior that you can't relate to and how we might think things like, have you no shame? And I, you know, it's interesting because from my, it's, it's more of like a respect thing. From my opinion, it's like, wow, these people are so disrespectful because you have shared with them your needs and they're going beyond them. They don't care enough about you to respect just your sleep, you know? And we think about like places that have rules about quiet hours, but even people will break those rules. And it it is an interesting element of the shame conversation and guilt as well. It's like, when people do things that they know 
are bothering someone else, do they experience that shame and guilt or do they just see things completely differently so that that's why they don't feel shame and guilt because maybe they don't perceive it as being disrespectful. Maybe they perceive you as, as being too controlling or something, right? And it's that's what's really fascinating to me about human behavior is it's all a matter of perspective. You know, and and uh, I'm sitting here, I'm, I'm like thinking critically about all of the ways in which, oh, what is it that they think? And what is it that, how could you, and oh, the other neighbors must feel this. And I am thinking a little bit about at the dawn of small communities and of people and the role of shame in, in that, that this would never happen, right? Because the community is too interwoven. And on top of that, you couldn't find 40 other people from outside the community to come over. So there is the I'm I'm this is another shame hammer example. I'm sitting here, I'm sitting here going, oh, this is interesting and whatever. And you know, there is like a vigilante element where I go, like, yeah, you should slash the tires. Of course, that's the wrong idea. Please don't clip that out of this podcast and blast me on social media. But it is interesting and I think very natural for the reaction to be that because you don't have to act on all of your thoughts. Um, they are being hella rude repeatedly. And, you know, I don't have any solutions for you, obviously. It's not what this is about. <laughs> but it's nice to hear that somebody had a human reaction to a difficult situation because, of course, that's not the kind of thing that you experience or see online. It also, I think, brings up the idea of wanting to punish someone. Like this this, this idea of this person needs to be punished because they've, quote, done something wrong or they've gone against my wishes or they've disrespected me. I mean, it's it's really interesting. You know, in Los Angeles here, one of, I guess one of the things that we're most potentially notorious for is incidents that are involved with road rage. You know, someone cuts someone off, uh, someone brake checks someone, someone flips someone off, and then people get out of their car and, you know, literally come to blows or you know, in the 80s and 90s, people were getting shot on the freeways of Los Angeles from flipping someone off. And it's this idea of disrespect and punishment sort of, again, being interwoven where, you know, my thing was like, I don't go, (laughs) I don't go to the nuclear option right away. You know, with people, it's sort of like, I observe myself, you know, okay, I'm going to communicate civilly. I'm going to communicate my boundaries. I'm going to communicate my desires, why this is bothering me. Could you please, you know, amend or change your behavior? And then after, I guess after a certain number of things, I find myself shifting into sort of this punitive mode of like, they need to be punished. But to both of your points of like perspective, well, they probably don't feel they need or have done anything wrong, right? But in my mind, I'm like, no, 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 I've done all of the civil, respectful, communicative channels that I can exhaust here. Those aren't working. So if this person isn't going to amend their behavior, then I'm going to have to punish you for like not being respectful and not listening to me. But it's also like not, you know, ultimately with this example, because I I think I want to put it to rest, but, you know, at the end of the night at like 4 a.m., I remember sitting there and going like, it's not my job to punish them. It's not my job to throw a Molotov cocktail into the yard. It's not my job to throw my dog's shit on their porch. It's not my job to key their car, slash their tires, scream at them. It's not my job. Like the reality is, you know, if you call it karma or not, like I believe in reciprocity and I believe that the energy you put out in the universe does come back in some other form. So if, if for me, it's like, it's not my job to punish them and, and, and I'm not the arbiter of karma in the universe. That's just not my role. So I put it to rest. You know, you mentioning the, the road rage. I don't remember who I was reading. I think it may have been James Gilligan. He wrote a book on, called Violence. 
I mean, I think in the nineties and he, which is fascinating. And uh, he talks about this idea that I think it's James Gilligan. So I'm sorry, scholars, if I get this wrong, but he talks about this idea that, you know, there's nothing more shameful than realizing how tiny the trigger was for you to feel shame in the first place. So there's this element of, you know, well, oh my God, you know, and, and you see it maybe in the, the road rage example, it's like someone cut me off and there might be at some point in that process where the, where it ends in violence, where someone realizes it's not that big of a deal, but there is the shame of, well, I'm, I, I have to follow through on this because I can't be wrong, which does actually connect a little bit to the Trump stuff from earlier about not that it's the same people, but the same mechanism at play of shame isn't an experience necessarily that has to play out the same every way. Shame is like a trigger that can go in a variety of directions, but the self-awareness of the smallness of it. And I thankfully do not have a ton of examples of this in my personal life, but I have talked to other people who recognize this person yelled at me, this person hit me, this person what, what was really cruel to me, and it was over this small thing. And it's hard to to separate a little bit of the smallness of it. And it's like, oh my gosh, this other person knows this is not a big deal. And I'm now this mad. I have to stop this. And to stop it, it's all for some people, it's a lot easier to just go to violence than it would be to own my own trigger in the first place. Well, it kind of goes back to maybe what comes up for me as cliche as this adage is, you know, the straw that breaks the camel's back. It's like if that shame trigger or that thing that incites violence in a road rage incident, because that's the example we're using, you know, it's certainly not an isolated thing. It's almost like this person potentially has a series of experiences where they're rendered powerless over and over and over and over and over again, or perhaps they don't have access to or the channels to perhaps emotionally process those feelings or work on their past trauma, that it almost seems to me like the stuff builds up, builds up, builds up, builds up. And then that one seemingly minute incident is just, it, it just kind of, you know, breaks everything open. It's not necessarily about that isolated situation, but yet the compounding effect of all of this frustration, powerlessness, and trauma that isn't being dealt with and processed. And I could be wrong on that, but it seems to me that when I, when I have acute reactions to seemingly minimal situations, it's because, oh, I'm not dealing with my shit. I'm not allowing myself to be dealing with my frustration, my trauma, my anger, whatever it is. And then this one minute thing just put, it's like the domino that just pushes all the other dominoes down. But I, the question in that case would be, because I think the in, the interesting thing about the James Gilligan point, and I, I don't know if it's true, but is about the moment when you recognize that the initial shame trigger was kind of stupid. That's the thing, right? And you're confronted with a heightened emotional decision. I mean, anything that happens, it doesn't play out instantly. It's a series of decisions where you have to then confront, oh my God, it is more shameful that I got upset about this than the actual shame I felt the first time is, I think, something that perhaps if you if I would encourage listeners to kind of like enter the world into, and as people, I have, there are some people in my life where I go, what, what, you know, like, for example, I have an 11 year old son, you know, he got mad at some kid at school a couple of years ago because the kid called him a name or whatever. And I go, you know, there's something about, 
you don't get if I were to say to you, Jason or Whitney, if I were to say like you're a water kettle, and you'd go, I, okay, what? <laughs> there's there's no shame triggered there because it's so far outside of the thing that we sort of secretly are worried about in terms of how our self image is projected and how we think other people view us. It's only when we somebody says something that is close to our own insecurity do we feel shame, and that's when when the anger comes in. You know, it, it's really it's this interesting mechanism of anger as response to shame is something that I don't think we talk about enough. And also, sort of connecting it back to the the Trumpian stuff, bravado, gaslighting, lies. You know, that is all. There's no other reason for those things to exist other than we are deflecting from the shame event. It doesn't make any other sense otherwise. When we, I guess, are processing the feelings of shame, I think one thing is this tendency to have shame become a a lingering part of our self-identification, right? Where something... It, you know, you talked about the history of social media and, and people going back, you know, 10, 15 years and being like, you said this on Facebook in 2006. It's this idea of sort of things that we've done being part of our identity. Uh, I was having a conversation recently with a friend without getting too much into the details of being perceived as a cheater. You know, like you may have cheated once in your life in a romantic context and then people are like, oh, well, you know, I wouldn't date him because he's a cheater. And this this idea of, you know, let me see how I can phrase this. The, the benefit of shame in emotionally processing a situation and taking ownership for our contribution of something versus letting it linger in our psyche to the point where it becomes part of our self-identification, right? And I, I think in some ways, I'm, I'm acknowledging and recognizing certain situations in my life where I've held onto it so long that it became part of my self-perception, not like, let me learn from the situation, take ownership or make amends for something, let it go and process it versus I'm going to embed it in part of like who I feel I am now. Yeah. You know, it's, I, I wrote this down earlier, you know, I, the thing that comes to mind in that case is I think, and this is my experience is a lot of, I remember, and I didn't even notice it was happening, but you know, I, I struggled later in high school because of a lot of anxiety. I was a, I'm a bright kid, but like couldn't get it together. And I went to college and it took forever. <laughs> Just couldn't get my stuff together. And I'd sort of been hiding it from my mom. Like, oh, I'm having really struggling here and blah, blah, blah. And I finally like told her on the phone, like, I don't know if I'm going to pass this semester. Like, I don't even know, you know, and all my Teachers were so supportive of me and I just like couldn't do it. And of course, there's all that shame. You're going, oh my God, like what? how am I messing this up so poorly? I'm supposed to be supposed to be good at this. And everyone's being so nice to me. And I remember saying to my, you know, there's this idea of like, it's too late. That's like, that's the internalized, like it's, it doesn't matter. It's too late already. I can't, you know, and I was telling this to my mom and I was like, it's too late. And she was like, too late for what? And I said, uh, I just feel like I've kind of lost the path, like, you know, and whatever. And she said, uh, this is just four words for anybody who might need it. She, and she just goes, there is no path. And I really was like, oh, what? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Like, this is the things I was going to do. And then I was going to do this. And now it's too late. I messed it up. And she's just like, that, that's not a real, that's a story you've told yourself. And that the ability to take one step back or have someone else, you know, to your point, Whitney, I think I got this from Brene Brown, right? You know, shame thrives in silence. You know, it is something that grows, that is disinfected by light, right? The moment that you're you're able to to give voice to it and say it out loud, even to yourself, you go, is that true? You know, we talk about limiting beliefs, we talk about all this other stuff. And there is, 
something about just being able to recognize, you know, that it's really at no point too late to make a different choice has been for me, you know, and part of the joy of making not so much shame rules, although I really hope people listen to it. I'm very proud of it. <laughs> but where there's smoke specifically a couple of show I did an episode on um on truth and lies and particularly the like the reasons that we tell the truth to ourselves and the reasons that we lie to ourselves and lie to others. And, you know, this this woman I talked to, Dr. Courtney Warren said the same thing. She goes, you know, it's never really too late to just make a different choice. That's not there are limits to that, of course. Like if your parent is dead and you had a bad relationship with them or whatever. But, you know, that's sort of the good news of the feeling of shame, which I don't, I'm not an expert in that specifically, but I think if people are trying to, I think people enter into shame conversations in that space. But I would hope that as people leave this conversation or leave the world, like I, I just to go like take that shame hammer with you and go, why is this happening? Why is our president saying that? Why can't she wear those clothes? Why can't he love that person? You know, there are all these things and and you sit there and you go, well, what, what did shame have to do with this? And it's not always, it's not the whole story, but what is shame as a, as a structural element? What is shame as a personal element of the people in charge of the people being subjugated and so, yeah, a lot of advice for a person who hates giving advice, but hopefully it's helpful. It's very helpful. And I think that's such a wonderful note to end on here because I think we we need to hear those things since shame can bring up so many intense emotions. You know, it's it's scary. We want to run away from it. It feels too much. We don't know what to do with it. And so having just some simple perspective, like knowing that, it's never too late to make a different choice, I think is incredibly powerful. I mean, I hear this all the time on social media, which is one of my big passions. And one of the most common obstacles for people with social media, like TikTok, for example, is am I too old? Is it too late? You know, people say this about podcasting, about YouTube. It's it's this concern that the thing that I want to do is not accessible to me because it's too late to do it. And I think people of all different ages can give this perspective. It's like, no, it's never too late. And you also asking those questions about why, Nick, are amazing for someone like me. I There's this wonderful kind of personality test that you can take called the four tendencies. And my result is the questioner. And I love the question why. The, I ask why about everything. And I think that has actually helped me with things like shame. So you're reminding me to not just ask why of other people, but to ask why of myself when I'm feeling those things. And it really does help when I have that awareness. So thank you so much for exploring shame from all of these different angles. And I certainly can't wait to listen to your shows. And, you know, I love both of them. I, I was commenting earlier, like the titles are are brilliant and you have a phenomenal voice and so much to share. And I love your approach. It really aligns up with us. So I feel very honored to have you on this show and, and to explore it. And, and what's cool about you, Nick, is you do it in a in-depth but simultaneously like casual fun conversational way which is like just makes you the perfect guest for this show well thank you and actually i want to say for people who've stuck with us for an hour and however many i don't want to spoil but (laughs) so i will say that the thing about shame rules itself and to your point whitney was that when i pitched it to somebody i was like i'm making this show about shame i don't have a title yet whatever and they were like why Ugh. (laughs) immediately they were like mad at me 
And I that reaction guided the whole thing and the whole conversation. It's like we don't talk about – we don't even want to talk about shame because the feeling of shame is so painful. So the show and hopefully the, our conversations and things around it are, are just trying to like – take interesting stories and interesting people. And so we can get as close to it as possible without immediately, you know, like I watched Bojack Horseman. I don't know if everyone watches that show, but sometimes with Bojack, I didn't want to start an episode because I knew I was going to just, it was going to be too hard. And so the hope here is that in these conversations, we're able to just not judge ourselves and just like learn from other people's experiences and hopefully grow from that. So I'm, so thank you for having me. This is the best. We're doing this tomorrow, right? We're gonna do this every day. Yes, count us in. <laughs> and it's funny that you brought up BoJack because I, I've watched that show and I have, I've only maybe made it through one season. It's actually really lovely and addresses, you know, some life challenges. So I love it when, uh, when animation can do that. But I, I also wanted to comment it, that your voice reminds me a bit of another animated series called Big Mouth. You sound a bit like Nick Kroll to me. Do people ever say that to you? you know, I have gotten that I look like Nick Kroll, which I don't know how I feel about that. No offense, Nick Kroll. <laughs> That's not what came to mind. I think it's your voice. You you have like, I think it's Nick Kroll. It actually, it might be John Mulaney because, you know, they're both on the show and maybe I'm mixing up their voices in my head right now. But regardless. No, I get it. I, I think if I, we all talk about this, right? Are you a Kroll or a Mulaney? Uh, I would... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, I'm definitely a Kroll. I used to listen to Nick Kroll back on Comedy Bang Bang in 2011 or whatever. So I'll take it. He also dated Amy Poehler. So, you know, I'll take that. I'll take that any, any day of the week. Yeah. And, you know, the more you talk to, it's like you've got a little bit of the Jason Manazukas way about you. You're basically the entire big mouth cast combined. And that's a big compliment because that's one of my favorite animated shows. This is my favorite thing that's ever happened, being told the people I sound like. <laughs> and I have to say, if you're spending this much time with Big Mouth and uh, really BoJack, especially like two and three, seasons two and three, I really would highly, highly recommend going back to it is it is I love television that I'm going to say you're the worst of the other one. But BoJack is devastating and beautiful at the same time it is it is definitely worth if you've pandemic out. And you're like, and it talks a lot about shame too on BoJack. Then it's it would definitely be worth spending time. All right. Well, I love Aaron Paul, so you know that was the reason I started watching yeah, it in the first place. So, so yeah, that's that's good homework. I, I'm waiting for Jason to finish watching or no, to start watching Soul, which I don't think oh. you've done yet. Did you see that, Nick? Yeah. On Disney. Yeah, it's great. Well, we can't spoil anything about the the movie. He doesn't really know much about it aside from that there's a jazz musician involved. But Jason, I assume you still haven't watched Soul yet because you haven't brought it up. No, but the plan, I know you've heard this 50 times. The plan is to finally do it tonight because my girlfriend, Laura, is somewhat, I love you, honey. You're probably, you're holding me hostage because you're you're not going to watch it without me. I'm like, well, we need to make time to watch it. So anyway, tonight is the plan. We're going to have a little food food, have a little move move, and then we can talk about it openly. So tonight is the night for Soul. Tonight, I hope, I hope it is. The former music teacher in me, it's my background, my master's is in music education, really, really, and also as a creative person, I think it, it, it does a lot of, I'm a sucker for movies that tell very small truths and take the time to do it. Like you could say anything in the world and you said this is like really like a thing I think about all the time. And so for that reason, I think it's a beautiful movie and I, I'm like, I'm so excited for you to watch it. 
Yeah, it's and for the listener too, all of these shows and movies are, are worth a watch. I mean, Big Mouth is more of a guilty pleasure. <laughs> it's it's a show that's just so vulgar and and just extreme at times. But man, it gives me a good laugh, which is is good for the soul and and pun intended because soul is truly lives up to its name. It, I, I want to see it again. It made me cry. I, I can cry just thinking about some some of the parts of the movie and. Jason, just be prepared to you're probably going to sob. I think that's my that's my prediction, but I don't want to build it up anymore. No, I I, I think you're probably right. I mean, being the sensitive Cancerian that I am, it doesn't take much for me to sob. Well, then be prepared for a good cry when you watch that movie. Thanks again, Nick, for being here today. We're going to link to your amazing podcast and our show notes for the listener that hasn't visited yet. We'll have all of Nick's details and the transcript from the show, any books that we've mentioned today, any great quotes that were shared. That's all for you at wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. If you click on the podcast section, you'll be directed to the show notes of the each episode that we do. You can easily search for Nick if it doesn't show up in the recent episodes, depending on when you're listening, because you could be listening a year from now and our entire lives could have changed by that point, but at least the transcript will still be there with this episode intact. And uh, Nick, truly thank you for bringing your fantastic voice and your wisdom, your perspectives, and all of the fun that we had here today. This is amazing. Thank you so much. We'll, we'll do it again someday. Tomorrow. Perfect. I am there. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. 